Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, Recently, I found a very disturbing poll. It's been posted on several websites. It's been posted on relevantmagazine.com, prnewswire.com, and the Christian Post. And the poll says that, and here's the title of the article about the poll on christianpost.com, More than half of U.S. adults, 30% of evangelicals, believe Jesus isn't God. Study. And the article is written written by Leonardo Blair, a Christian Post reporter. And what Blair writes is that more than half of American adults, including 30% of evangelicals, say Jesus isn't God, but most agree he was a great teacher, according to results from the 2020 State of Theology survey. Even though the Bible and traditional teachings of the Christian Church hold that Jesus truly existed as both man and God, among the key findings of the biennial biennial State of Theology survey from Legionnaire Ministries conducted with LifeWay Research is that 52% of American adults believe that Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. And nearly a third of evangelicals also support that view. A preliminary release on the findings of the study said Thursday. The complete report on the survey, conducted March 10th to 18th among 3,002 U.S. adults, including 630 professing evangelicals, is expected to be released on September 8th. Um, yeah, this, this was written a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Blair goes on to write... Uh, he quotes Stephen Nicholas, chief academic officer of Legionnaire Ministries, and Stephen Nicholas says, quote, Study, Statistics like these from the State of Theology survey can give us quite a shock, but they also shed light on the concerns that many American Christians and churches have expressed for decades. As the culture around us increasingly abandons its moral compass, professing evangelicals are sadly drifting away from God's absolute standard in Scripture, end quote. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole start, uh, the whole article here from Leonardo Blair, but this is pretty startling. Thirty percent of people who identify as evangelicals deny the deity of Jesus. Now, I would say that these are not evangelicals. Not really. They may say they're evangelicals, but they're not. If you do not believe Jesus is God, you are not a Christian. The deity of Jesus is one of the essential tenets of the Christian faith. It's it's a profession in one of the Nicene creeds. Now, in on my website cerebralfaith.net, in my uh, about Evan Minton section, in which I talk about myself and and how I got into apologetics, a short biography of myself, I. I in the second part of that, on this page, I have a list of my theological beliefs, and they're divided into two categories, the essentials and the non-essentials. The essentials are defined by the three ecumenical creeds. The ecumenical creeds were, um, d- d- they were, came up with at ecumenical councils, 
And the three creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And this is all I have in the list of theological beliefs that are essential for Christianity. And they are essential for you to believe if you're going to be a Christian. Now, in the second category, the non-essentials, I have uh, a list of non-essential doctrines that I affirm to be true, um, and Christians can disagree or dis uh, can agree or disagree on these these issues, and it doesn't really matter insofar as salvation and orthodoxy is concerned. Although we, I think, we ought to con we ought to be concerned about theological truth in all areas. But as some have rightly said, some truths are more important than others. Now, why is the deity of Jesus so important for Christianity? Well, for one thing, there's a blog post on thereforegodexist.com called Can a Christian Believe That Jesus Is Not God? Um, and this is, it goes into a very good explanation as to why you have to believe that Jesus is God uh, the deity of Jesus is one of the uh, one of the several things that Christianity stands or falls on, and one of the th one of the things that this author Jim Boucher points out is uh, under the subheading "Honor the Son as you honor the Father." Uh, in John chapter five verses twenty two to twenty three, Jesus says, quote, "For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, end quote. And Boucher says, quote, The word translated into honor in this verse refers literally to the value that we place on somebody, the esteem that we give a person. If a king tells us to honor the prince, we are to treat the prince as though he were the king. He is to be esteemed as one esteems the king. That illustration is precisely parallel to what Jesus says of himself and the Father. He says that we must honor the Son in exactly the same way that we honor the Father. The Father acts so that all who will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Then he takes it from a corporate level to an individual level. The man who does not honor the Son in this way does not honor the Father. The man who does not honor the Son exactly as he honors the Father does not honor the Father. Thus, the man who does not esteem Jesus as God consequently fails to honor the Father. Can a Christian believe that Jesus is not God? No, they would not be honoring the Son as they honor the Father. Thus, their entire system of worship would be shown to be a fraud. They are not honoring the Father because they do not honor the Son. End quote. There are some other reasons. Um, inspiring Philosophy, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy has a whole video on this, and one of the things that he points out is that it would diminish the love of God. Because God, if Jesus were just a creature, if he were just a, if he were just a human being, then that would mean that God sent Jesus to do a job. Uh, he didn't, namely to die on the cross, a horrible, slow, torturous death to atone for our sins, but he wasn't willing to do it himself. God wasn't willing to get his hands dirty. He created, a, he created a prophet and sent him to do the job. God wasn't really willing, as we Christians have traditionally taught, to descend to our level to take our punishment. So, if Jesus is just a mere man, then, I mean, yeah, God still gave up his one and only son, whatever the heck that means, if Jesus is not God. But 
God wasn't willing to get his hands dirty. He still sat up in heaven, high and lofty, untouchable, unapproachable. But that's all I'm going to say about why it's necessary that we be- that we believe in Jesus. There are some other reasons, and they're based on what Scripture teaches about Jesus, some commands regarding what we do with Jesus that really would be blasphemous if if Jesus weren't God. Like and one of the one of those I've already mentioned in John 5, honor the son as we honor the father. Well, no one doubts that the father is God. If we're to honor the son in the same way that we honor the father, that would be worship. We we have to worship Jesus. But if Jesus is just a man, then we can't obey Jesus because that would be that would be idolatry. We'd be worshiping the creation instead of the creator. So what I'm going to what I'm going to be doing in this podcast episode is I'm going to be talking about the evidence for the deity of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to be using the criterion of authenticity when I talk about what Jesus said about himself because I'm not really reaching out to atheists, agnostics, or other non-Christians here. I do when I talk about Jesus' divine self-understanding. I will use the criterion of authentic, the, the criteria of authenticity, like multiple attestation, embarrassment, dissimilarity, uh, enemy attestation, and so on. Um, when I'm talking about the evidence for Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, uh, when I'm talking. When I'm trying to, when I'm making the case for non-Christians, but that's what—that's not what I'm doing in this episode. What I'm doing is I'm—I'm I'm making this episode for the perp, for the sake of those who say they believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. They say that they believe the Bible is true, and yet they deny that Jesus is God. I'm—I'm I'm going into these. 30% of evangelicals who believe that Jesus isn't God. That's who I'm reaching out to uh, when I make the case for the deity of Jesus today in this podcast episode. So if you're not a Christian, um, you're, you, you're going to want, if you want to know how we really know the historical Jesus believed that, that he's God incarnate, um, I have resources on that. I talk about that in my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. I have a whole chapter on that. I also have a whole chapter on that in my book, The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity. And I have a short blog post on it on my website, CerebralFaith.net, where I kind of go into a very brief overview of what I get into in my books. Now, the evidence for the biblical teaching that Jesus is God comes in three broad categories. The first category is the New Testament author's explicit statements and teachings. These would be places where the New Testament writers explicitly say, they come right out and say, Jesus is God, he's the creator of everything, all of creation depends on him for its existence and he's uncreated he's omnipotent he's worthy of worship and things of that sort they're just explicit they just come right out and say jesus is god the second category are things that jesus said about himself things that 
the gospel authors record Jesus as saying about himself. The third category are Old Testament titles for Yahweh. The, the Old Testament authors used certain language when talking about Yahweh. And the New Testament writers take these titles and they apply them to Jesus. And sometimes they explicitly quote Old Testament verses when they do so. So the three categories, one, New Testament authors' explicit statements and teachings, two, what Jesus said about himself, and three, Old Testament titles for Yahweh applied to Jesus. So let's get into that first category, New Testament authors' explicit statements and teachings. <clears throat> In John chapter 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And then a few verses later, we read, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. This is obviously about Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, he's, John says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Obviously, if you read the rest of John's Gospel, it's pretty clear who the Son of God, the Father, is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The, the Greek word here is logos, lo, or logos, logos. I've heard different theologians and philosophers of religion pronounce it different ways, so uh, <laughs> I don't. I've, I've also heard different, different theologians and philosophers of religion pronounce Salome's name differently. Salome, Salami, Salome. So I've heard it pronounced so many different ways, I don't know which one is right, but Logos or logos, that's the Greek word that's translated as word. In the beginning was the logos, the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The word was God. I mean, it, it's pretty explicit here. The word was God. The word became flesh. The word is the son of the father. Jesus is God. And it says, through him all things were made. All things. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John says here, kind of tautologically, in, in John 1-3, that all things were made through Jesus. And just in case you really doubt that all means all here, he says, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, if it was made, if it came into being, it came into being because of the word the word if it exists at all if it came into being it's either directly or indirectly 
the word is either directly or indirectly responsible for it. In other words, the word, Jesus, is the creator of all of reality other than himself. He created everything, the entire universe. That's John chapter 1, verse 3. And this is a very Trinitarian text, too. Look at, look at how John says it. The, in the beginning, which is hearkening back to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's with God, and yet he is God. He's with God, and yet he is God. So, he's with God. He's somehow distinct from God. He's somehow a distinct person or entity from God, and yet he is God. And this... This sounds this sounds very trinitarian. Jesus is God, but he's not the same person as God the Father. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. They're distinct persons, but they're the same deity. They're the same they're the same entity. They're one God, three persons. One God, three persons. The the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He, he's with God, distinct from God in some sense or other. And he is God, so he's identified with God. A is A in some sense or other, and he's with God in the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, verse 3, Clara, verse, verse three says what the beginning mentioned in verse 1 and verse 2 is. It's the beginning of the universe because it goes on to say, Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Creation, especially creation of all things, is an act of deity. Only God can do it. In fact, the Old Testament says that only God has done it. Only God has created the universe. No one else created alongside God. As I say in my blog post, Three Syllogistic Arguments for Jesus' Deity, um, I, I talk about how the Bible says that God created everything, only God created everything, and yet the Bible also says Jesus created everything. This is syllogism number two in the blog post. One, only God created the universe. Two, Jesus created the universe. Three, therefore, either the Bible contradicts itself <clears throat> or Jesus is God. Four, the Bible cannot contradict itself. Five, therefore, Jesus is God. This syllogism is logically valid, so if the premises are true, the conclusion follows. <clears throat> so, are the premises true, or are they false? Well, let's look at them. The first premise is backed up by the Old Testament, that only God created the universe. No one else is responsible. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, God says, quote, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, end quote. In this verse, God says that he spread out the earth by himself. Other, translate, other translations render it, I alone spread out the earth. 
In Job chapter 9, verse 8, Job says of God, quote, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea, end quote. Both of these verses, Isaiah 44.24 and Job 9.8, state that God alone is responsible for the stretching out of the heavens. This is an act of creation. Uh, regardless of whether you agree with Concordus, like Hugh Ross, that this is referring to the expansion of the fabric of space from the Big Bang point of origin, or whether you interpret this in its ancient Near Eastern context, which would see this as God spreading out a solid dome over a flat earth, uh, regard whether you take the concordist approach that this is referring to the expansion of space from the Big Bang, or the non-concordist approach interpreting it in light of its ancient Near Eastern context, the authority the author would have understood it as God setting a solid dome over the earth. No matter no matter which way you interpret that, the stretching out of the heavens is a creative act, and the Bible says that God is the sole entity responsible for it. What about the second premise? Well, we've already gone over John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, which says that the Word in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Um, this prologue to John's Gospel echoes Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, prior to the creation of the physical space-time realm, the Word alone existed. He was with God and was God himself, and he created everything. If it But we all but John is not alone in saying that Jesus is the creation of everything. In Colossians 1, the apostle Paul says the exact same thing. Quote, "The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth." Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Premise 2 is pretty well established. The Old Testament says that God created the universe alone. He had no helpers in the act of divine creation, and yet the New Testament says clearly that Jesus created the universe. This leads us to premise three. Either the Bible contradicts itself, or Jesus is God. Again, I don't see a third option. If Jesus isn't the same being as Yahweh, then either the New Testament is false in saying that Jesus created the universe, or the Old Testament got it wrong when it said Yahweh had no helpers in creation. Of course, there is a second option. Jesus and Yahweh are one in the same being. Premise four. If uh, premise four is that the Bible cannot contradict itself. If you really believe that God breathed out both testaments, Second Timothy three sixteen, then this then the former option that the Bible contradicts itself is not acceptable. God cannot err. The Bible is God's word. God cannot err, the Bible is God's word, therefore the Bible cannot err. That's, that's Norman Geisler's syllogism for biblical inerrancy. Since the four premises are true, then so is the conclusion. Five, therefore Jesus is God. So, Jesus created the universe, only God created the universe, so Jesus is God. But, I mean... The verse explicitly says, the word was God. 
the Word was God. It, it, it can't get any more explicit than that. So how in the world do people get around this? How do they deny it when it explicitly says the word was God? Well, one of the primary arguments that Jehovah's Witnesses use, um, and I know I'm going out to quote-unquote evangelicals, that's who I'm reaching out to, who say the Bible is inspired and, and, but, and yet they say Jesus is not God, but you know, maybe they agree. Maybe some of them have read, been reading Jehovah's Witnesses material, uh, Watchtower Society stuff, and maybe they have read this argument uh, that I'm about to tell you about. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the lack of a definite article in John 1 proves that Jesus is merely a God rather than God. He's not God with a capital G, he's God with a lowercase g. He's a, he's a God in the same sense that Baal or Asherah or any other uh, ex-member of the Divine Council is. He's, a, he's just a God. He is God with a lowercase g. Now, on my website, CerebralFaith.net, I have a guest article uh, written by Johnny Sacker of Freethinking Ministries, www.freethinkingministries.com. Um, he sent me the article back in 2018, uh, you know, to get my thoughts on it. And I said, "Hey, you know, this is a pretty good. This is a pretty good post. Do you mind if I put it up on my on my website?" And he said, "Yeah." And so I I put it up there, and he he talks about this this argument from the Jehovah's Witnesses or their abbreviated JW. They argue that because there's no artic definite article in John 1:1. Before the word God, that therefore John one one should not be translated, and the word was God. Instead, it should be translated the word was a God. Um, and uh, then Johnny Sacker has some Greek letters that I don't know how to read. He's using the Greek alphabet, and he uh, Sacker writes quote J W S typically argue that the definite article should be inserted before the last appearance of the word theos in order for the text to be properly translated and the word was God, as rendered by the copious majority of English translations, as outlined above. The Greek text should therefore be read, and, the, um, and then he uses some more Greek letters, but he gets to why this is not a problem. He says that, quote, John did not insert a definite article before the word theos because if he did, the text would have been understood as what God was, the word was. It, it would be circular. John's refusal to insert the renders theos as a pr predicate, nominative, predicate nominative noun. Easier <laughs> easy for you to say. John wanted to make theos, or uh, logos, the subject of the verse. For this reason, he placed the before it. Placing the before theos and not logos indicates there are two separate persons, end quote. So basically, if John had put the definite article before Theos, God, 
He would have been teaching modalism, or also known as Sabellianism. Whatever God was, the Word was. Uh, not only is God the Word, but uh, not only is the Word God, but God is the Word. So, but that's if John was a Trinitarian and he wanted to teach that Jesus is God and yet is some is distinct from the Father. That would have been very. It would have been very problematic for him to word that way. If the definite article appeared before Theos, for a proper rendition to be, and the word was God, the God, John would have been teaching Sabellianism or modalism. Modalism is the view that God God does not exist as three co-eternal persons, but He changes modes. He sometimes appears as the Father, sometimes He appears as the Son, sometimes He appears as the Holy Spirit. Um, he's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the same sense that a man could be a father, a son, and a husband. He's not three distinct persons. He's one person, and these are just three different roles he plays or three different modes he takes on. But not only that, but in John chapter 1, verse 18, I think, let me see where, um, John chapter 1, verse 18 John says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father he has made him known. Inspiring Philosophy, in his video series on the, the, the biblical case for the Trinity, he, he says that in the Greek, in the Greek, the definite article is not before Theos in John 1.18 either. And yet this is clearly talking about God the Father. No one has ever seen God, Theos, but the one and only Son, in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. He has made God known. So if here's a reductio ad absurdum. If the Jehovah no Jehovah's Witness is going to deny that the Father is God, but if they want to maintain that because that Jesus is just a God, sort of a lesser created divine entity, because there's no definite article in John 1 1, then they have to, if they're going to be consistent, say that the Father isn't God either. God, the Father is just a God. The Father is just a God with a lowercase g, just a lesser, not the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator of the universe, but just a God. Because John doesn't use the definite article in John 1.18 when talking about the Father either. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So this is that's not a good argument. Now, maybe the, now I, the Mormons would probably not have a problem with that because they don't believe God is... A maximally great being either. They believe he's just a very powerful old man in the sky. Uh, and if you think I'm a straw man, if you think I'm straw manning that, I have a, a an interview with a former Mormon on this podcast. We're talking about her book, Out of Zion, uh, and she, she talks about what the Mormons believe about God. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, they do believe God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, the, the ground of reality. They just don't believe Jesus is. And if they're going to say that because the definite article in John 1.1 means that Jesus is just a God, then they've got to say that the Father is just a God because John doesn't use the definite article in John 1.18. 
Now, other here's some other places where the biblical authors explicitly say that Jesus is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to... Well, let's just read the whole chapter. <clears throat> Hebrews 1. In the past, quote, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he, had, after he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son? And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set above you your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Or uh, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to, those, uh, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? End quote. That's, John, that's, Hebrew, that's the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 1. And... In, uh, in the footnotes of the Bible, of this English Bible here, we have all of the references that Hebrews 1 makes. Uh, Hebrews 1.5 quotes Psalm 2.7. He, uh, Hebrews 1.5 also uh, quotes 2 Samuel 7.14 and 1 Chronicles 17.13. Hebrews 1.6 uh, quotes Deuteronomy 32.43. See the Dead Scrolls and Septuagint. Hebrews one seven quotes Psalm one hundred four four. Hebrews one nine quotes Psalm forty five six and seven. Hebrews one twelve quotes Psalm chapter one hundred two verses twenty five to twenty seven. And Hebrews chapter one verse thirteen quotes Psalm chapter one hundred ten verse one. And this is an example of the New Testament authors taking Old Testament passages and repurposing them or saying that they meant more than the original author and audience would have understood. You know, I often, this is a little bit of an informational footnote, but one of the reasons I, you know, I, I have disagreements with concordists about saying, oh, well, there's, there's hidden science in the Bible. Well, you might say, stretching out the heavens, that sounds a lot like the expansion of the universe. Well, you know, it could be sometime. You know, there's a there's a principle in hermeneutics called the sensus planora. Sometimes the biblical authors were writing, and they meant one thing, 
but the the Holy Spirit who inspired them not only meant that thing that they were talking about, but they meant something more than that. They had more than what the human author was aware of. The problem, though, is that with Genesis 1 and comparing it to modern science, we don't have any divinely authoritative source to say that there's more to it than what the, the author understood. That's why I don't... That's why I don't take Hugh Rossian hermeneutics anymore. It's just, you know, science is not as authoritative as the Bible. But here in Hebrews 1, we have a divinely inspired text, Hebrews 1, a book of the New Testament, saying that there was more meaning to certain Old Testament passages than the Old Testament audience understood. That's just a, a informational footnote there. But look at what is going on in this passage. In the begin in the beginning of the ch of the chapter, the author says that the, through the sun, through God created the entire universe. Again, the same thing as we saw in Colossians one and John one. Through Jesus, God made everything, and yet the Old Testament says God made everything by Himself. He had no help. Then in Hebrews 1.3, we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, how can you be how can you be the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and sustain all things by your powerful word unless you are God? Now, of course, all humans are, in one sense, a representation of God. If, you know, I, I have I talk about this a lot in my uh, paper on Genesis 1, how God created images of himself, human beings, before he came and rested in his cosmic temple, the universe, on you know day 6 and 7. So we all represent God to some extent or another. But look at what the author says here. Jesus is the exact representation of his being. He's the perfect representation of God. He, he, he's the perfect representation of God, the exact, not just, not just, a, you know, not just a representation of God in the same way everyone is, but the exact representation of God, you know, or as Colossians 1 says, he's the visible image of the invisible God, and he sustains all things by his powerful word, and he radiates God's glory, he made the whole universe, who does that sound like? Does that sound like a mere creature, or does that sound like an angel? No, that sounds like Yahweh. Hebrew, that's that's Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.2 and Hebrews 1.3. And uh, Hebrews 1.4 says he's superior to the angels. And then we have, in the rest of the chapter, a conversation between God and his Son. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and it's impl it, it, it implies that God never said this to any of the angels. It's a rhetorical question. To, for which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or, I, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. In Hebrews 1.6 it says, When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Okay, I'm sorry. God is telling the angels... To worship his son. Worship. How, if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity, then God would be commanding his angels to break the first commandment. 
to worship the creation instead of the creator. Let all God's angels... If, if he was the angel St. Michael, as Jehovah's Witnesses say, which, by the way, Hebrews 1, it's almost as if Hebrews 1 was written to refute the Jehovah's Witnesses. Which of the angels did God ever say these things? But let all of God's angels worship him. Is God going to com is God commanding the angels to worship Saint Michael? I don't think so. God read the look at the Old Testament. God not only hated idolatry, he hated idolatry. It got him you know, uh, he you know, I'm, I'm speaking anthropomorphically here, but it got his blood boiling. He sent Israel into Babylon, into Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of all their idolatry. He hated it. So why would he command his heavenly host to worship a creature, to, to do that very thing that got him so hot under the collar in the Old Testament, so angry that he sent Israel into Babylonian captivity? doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if Jesus is God. If the Father and the Son are the same deity, just different persons, co-eternal persons. And in uh, Hebrews 1.7... Uh, no, in Hebrews 1.8, it says, quote, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy, end quote. So, about the Son, God says, God is speaking to his Son, and he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companion. God is calling his son God. He is talking to Jesus, and he is saying, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Therefore, God... Can you imagine God talking to any... Can, can you imagine God talking to me and saying, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever? God, you know, Yahweh is not ever going to call me God, because I'm not. He would be blaspheming himself, unless Jesus is God. In Hebrews 1.10, it says, <clears throat> He, God, quote, quote, He, God, also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They, all, they will all wear out like a garment, end quote. Again, God, God says to Jesus, in the beginning, kind of sounds like Genesis 1 and John 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, Lord, can you imagine Yahweh calling any other being Lord? And he says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus is Lord, he's the creator of, of everything. And God affirms this. And then in Hebrews 1.13, less explicit, but still pretty powerful, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To sit on God's throne is to be equal to God. This is, this is extremely powerful. This, I mean, this is blatant. This is, this is in the first category of evidence, explicit statements that Jesus is God. Explicit, explicit, you can't get any more explicit than this. It's not possible to be any more explicit than this. 
And I've already quoted Colossians chapter 1, in which Paul says that Jesus uh, is the visible image of the invisible God, and he created everything, and, th- and in him all creation holds together. That's pretty explicit. Um, that's Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 15 to 17. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. But interestingly enough, in in Romans 9, which I did a whole podcast episode on a couple of weeks ago, how it doesn't prove what the Calvinists say it wants to prove, but in there's a verse here in which Paul explicitly calls Jesus God. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Romans 9, 5, Paul says, Of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, God over all, be blessed forever and ever. Amen. That's the RSV. Um, And in the NIV, it says, From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Again, pretty explicit. There's more I could go into here, but we're going on 44 minutes, 45 minutes, so I'm going to move on to the second category, what Jesus said about himself. You know, we've all heard it. Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never claimed to be deity. Well, that's a half-truth. Jesus never said the three words, I am God. But he did say things that if he did make claims about himself that if he weren't God would be blasphemous. I think probably the most explicit is in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 64. This is uh, Jesus standing before the high priest Caiaphas at his trial. And, you know, they had a whole bunch of false witnesses, you know, that, um, well, they were telling half-truths, like, oh, he destroyed, he said he would destroy the temple, said one of them. And Jesus did say destroy, you know, this temple is going to be destroyed, but that was a prediction of what happened in 70 AD. He wasn't saying that he was going to destroy the temple. Uh, Another part, another, at another point in John 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it, but he was talking about his body. So it's a kind of a half-truth. But, you know, if you said you were going to destroy the temple, that I, Jews didn't like that. That was the center of their religion. Um, but they said a whole bunch of different things, and, you know, they all some of them contradicted each other, the text says. But then Caiaphas, he gets right up in Jesus' face, and he, he asks him point blank. And I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, verses 61 to 64. Quote, <clears throat> Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas then tore his clothes and said, Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Jesus' response was considered blasphemous because Jesus was claiming to be God. Well, you might say, well, how is that? He just says he's the Messiah. He just says he's the Son of God. Um, and he says, <coughs> he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting coming on, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. I don't see anything 
um, I don't see any big deal here. Well, that's because you're a modern 21st century Westerner, uh, and you don't know the Old Testament context of all of the things that Jesus is, is talking about here. He says he's the Son of Man. Well, who's the Son of Man? Well, Son of Man is used in a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it just refers to a human being, as it does in the Psalms. Uh, Ezekiel is called by God a Son of Man. But there's one place in the Old Testament where the Son of Man is not just a man. He's a divine being. The Jews realized this, and this is a this is a whole other topic, the, the two powers in heaven, the two Yahweh's uh, teaching in Second Temple Judaism. I'm not going to get into that today. But in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, we read, quote, In my vision, this is Daniel talking, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. End quote. So, how do we know? You know, how do we know Jesus is referring to Jesus is claiming to be this Son of Man for one thing? Well, he says he's going to be coming on the clouds of heaven. In Daniel seven, the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven. Jesus was saying that he was the same person mentioned in Daniel seven. What's striking about this is how Daniel describes this Son of Man figure. Daniel says that he is given authority and sovereign power over all peoples and nations. Moreover, that people all over the world worship him. Worship! Daniel says that the Son of Man is given an everlasting dominion, a dominion that will not pass away. This is a pretty exalted figure that Daniel is describing. And that's one of the that's part of why Jesus' response was blasphemous. But there's other things that Jesus said that just compounded it. Jesus' response was considered blasphemous because he was claiming to be this divine son of man figure in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 to 14 who would A, be sovereign over all creation, and who B, would be worshipped by every nation, and who C, would be given an everlasting dominion. Moreover, D, by saying that he would, quote, be seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, and here he's referencing Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, he was putting himself on the same level of authority with God the Father. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'll be sitting on God's throne. To sit at God's right hand is to sit on God's throne. To sit on God's throne is to imply equality with God. Additionally, we must pay attention to Jesus' coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, in our culture, in our mindset, this is not a big deal. We just we get a vision of Jesus just, you know, riding, maybe in the second coming. He's riding on a horse, and he's coming down from the sky, and there's a big cloud behind him. And moreover, lots of people come on the clouds. United Airlines come on the clouds all the time. But in the Old Testament context, this is a claim to be God coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, as Michael Heiser explains in, uh, a, in, a, in an article on Logos.com, quote, 
throughout. Oh, well, uh, first he says that. Oh, um, Heiser says, quote, throughout the Ugaritic texts, Baal is repeatedly called the one who rides the clouds or the one who mounts the clouds. The description is recognized as an official title of Baal. No angel or lesser being bore the title. As such, everyone in Israel who heard this title associated it with a deity, not a man or an angel. Part of the literary strategy of the Israelite prophets was to take this well-known title and attribute it to Yahweh in some way. Consequently, Yahweh, the God of Israel, bears this descriptive title in several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 26, Psalm chapter 68 verse 33, and Psalm chapter 104 verse 3. For a faithful Israelite, then, there was only one God who rode on the clouds, Yahweh, end quote. Is it any wonder that the high priest threw a hissy fit when Jesus said that he would come on the clouds of heaven? This is what Jesus was claiming about himself. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He's going to be sitting on God's throne. He's equal with God. He's the Son of Man, whom Daniel 7 says will be given sovereignty over all creation. He will receive worship from people all over the world, and he will come on the clouds of heaven. He's the Cloud Rider, a title that belonged to Yahweh alone. I think it's safe to say that Jesus, in referring to himself as the Son of Man, was claiming to be God. I don't know, in fact, I don't know how he could be any more explicit in his claim to divinity in this passage, except to just say the exact words, I am God. If, if you want to, if you don't, that's the only, that's the only way I can imagine that he could be more explicit, is just by saying those three words, I am God. Um, and by the way, if you're not, con if you're, if you're still not convinced that the Son of Man has divine connotations, I don't know why you wouldn't be convinced, but in case you are, consider that Jesus, as the Son of Man, claimed to be able to forgive sins. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, a paralyzed man is lowered down to Jesus from above uh, the roof. The paralyzed man's friends did this because the house Jesus was in was so crowded that they couldn't get through the door. Since they couldn't get in through the door, they climbed on top of the roof, punched a hole in the roof, and lowered the paralyzed man down to Jesus. Jesus saw how much faith they had in him, so Jesus said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees' reaction was quite understandable. They said, Who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus responded, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So then Jesus turns to the paralyzed man, tells him to get up his mat, uh, get up, take his mat, and go home, and he does so. Uh, the miracle validated his message. Now, the Pharisees were correct in pointing out that only God has the authority to forgive sins. If you do something wrong to me, I have the right to forgive you. But if you do something wrong to me and some third party comes along and says, I forgive you, we would immediately see something off. There's something wrong with that. The only third party who has the right to do that is God himself. And yet Jesus said that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And this isn't the only time Jesus claimed to forgive sins. There was another instance in which uh, um, a prostitute came in when Jesus was having a meal with one of the religious leaders. She wept. She 
um, she she bowed down at Jesus's feet, washed his feet with her tears, wiped and dried it with her hair, um, and uh, Jesus said, um, "Your sins are forgiven." So, yeah, Jesus claimed to be God by claiming to be the Son of Man, and by you know the, by what the Son of Man is able to do, and what the, what the Son of Man does. We also know that Jesus claimed to be God because he claimed to be the Son of God. Um, and now skeptics will argue there's nothing there's nothing divine about the title Son of God because others have been called sons of God. You know, I've talked a lot about divine counsel theology on this podcast, and you know, we know that members of the heavenly co- of the heavenly host were called sons of God. For you know, the and some heavenly some of the members of the heavenly host transgressed had sex with human women, and produced the Nephilim freaks of nature in Genesis 6. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, the divine council is called the sons of God. It's a, and of course, you know, we, every Christian male is called a son of God, John 1, 12. You know, who, those to, who believe in Jesus, they gain the right to be called children of God. You know, women are not sons of God. They would be daughters of God. But, you know, so the skeptic says it's not a big deal. But... Um, the problem is, is that when you look at the context in which Jesus claimed to be son of God, you find that he meant it in a much different way. He's not just, you know, you know, um, uh, in that Christmas special, uh, Peter Capaldi's last episode on Doctor Who before the doctor regenerated, um, You know, he, he gets out of the TARDIS, and he's in the snow, and he's he's trying not to regenerate because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to become a different person. He doesn't want to get a new face and a somewhat new personality. He's tired of doing it. He's done it so many times already, and so he's just fighting against it. And then he hears a voice uh, calling out from the blizzard, and he's um and he sa- uh, and the voice says, "Who's there?" And Capaldi responds. I'm the doctor, and the voice says, oh, well, you might be a doctor, but I'm the doctor, the original, you might say, and it shows up, and it's, he shows up, and it's the first doctor, um, it's an actor portraying William Hartnell's original Doctor Who, you might be a doctor, but I'm the doctor, the original, you might say, I think if Jesus, if Jesus were conversing with uh, modern-day skeptics and say, oh, well, of course you're a son of God. You know, I'm a son of God. The, the angels are the sons of God. Jesus would say, well, you might be a son of God, but I'm the son of God. The original, you might say. <laughs> you might be a son of God, but I'm the son of God. The original, you might say. Well, how do we know that he meant it in this exalted, special cl- uh, sense? Well, by looking at the context in which Jesus uses it. In Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus says in regards to his second coming, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I'm not doing a criterion of authenticity here, but just just an informational footnote. Uh, The majority of non-Christian historians consider this to be an authentic statement of the historical Jesus. Why? Well, because if the Gospels were fabricated to make Jesus look divine, they certainly wouldn't have made up a statement that makes Jesus look less than omniscient. This passage is uncomfortable to explain if you're trying to make Jesus look divine. Uh, This is actually an argument that, you know, tries to say Jesus isn't God because God is omniscient. God knows everything. How could Jesus 
be God if he doesn't know at least one thing, namely the time of his second coming. Well, this is a, another topic altogether, but William Lane Craig has a, a um, he has a model of the incarnation that he defends in the book that he co-wrote with J.P. Moreland, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. He also defends this model of the incarnation in his Defenders class on reasonablefaith.org. Uh, the model has three planks. Uh, one is that Jesus is one person with two natures, human and divine. Uh, the second is that the spirit, uh, the mind of Jesus is the divine logos. And the third is that Jesus' subliminal, uh, Jesus' divine attributes were largely subliminal. And Craig says that Jesus' omniscience was basically made, it was basically tucked away in his subconscious, so that Jesus, in a sense, both knew and did not know the time of his second coming. And we all know how we, how this works, how we can, we know something, we know that we know it, but we just can't get to it. It's in our subconscious. And sometimes we don't even know that we know it. I, sometimes I hear a song that I haven't heard in years, and I'm immediately able to sing all, along with it, all of the lyrics. I knew the song, and I knew the lyrics to the song, but I didn't know that I kn knew the song. It was in my subconscious. Um, sometimes we forget the names of people, and we're like, I know this, I know that person's name. I just It's right on the tip of my tongue. I don't know, I, just, I can't, I don't know. I know, but I don't know. And then maybe a little while later it comes to you. Oh, yes. Sam. That's Sam. Uh, this is, well, this is uh, how, how Craig explains how Jesus could not know the time of his second coming. And not just that, but also other things, like how we don't have a... a Jesus speaking full-blown Aramaic in in the manger in Bethlehem, how Jesus doesn't just come out of the womb being omniscient and saying, hello, mother, hello, father, or he would have said Abba, because that's Aramaic for dad. Um, he had to learn, as Luke 2.52 says, he grew in wisdom and stature because his omniscience was tucked into the back of his mind. Um... That's how Jesus could be omniscient, and yet he would still have to go to to school to learn his the the Hebrew equivalent of his ABCs and one two threes. He would have to read the Torah and memorize it, even though he you know technically inspired it. Um, as for other divine attributes, I would say things like you know as far as omnipotence goes, I would say Jesus probably had access to his omnipotence he just didn't exercise it he didn't pull rank so to speak but uh this is you know this is not this is not the time and place to get into how the incarnation works out this would be a two-hour episode if i got into that but that's just a that's just a side note there for how jesus doesn't know the time of his second coming he, he knew it subconsciously but he didn't know it consciously William Lane Craig also appeals to um, studies in which people have what is called blind sight. They can be hypnotized into not being aware that an object is in front of them. Say a piano, and you hypnotize them to not see the piano there. And you say to them, come over here, you know, from across the room. And they come to you. 
And yet, when they come to you, they avoid walking into the piano. They really don't see it. They are they don't know that the piano is there. And yet, in some sense or other, they do know because they avoid, they walk around it. But if you were to tell them, is there a piano there? They would say, no, there's no piano there. So it's, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like the way the, the human mind, you know, the way the, the mind works, we have, you know, knowledge and yet a lack of knowledge. And so that's kind of an analogy to, to Jesus's knowledge, at least before the resurrection. But why does this, why does this, uh, when it seems to argue, at least seems to argue against the deity, why do I use it as argument for uh, Jesus's claim to be divine? Well, because scholars have noted that in this passage, Jesus employs a figure of speech known as anabasis. Anabasis is an ascending scale with increasing emphasis. An example of anabasis would be if I said, I wouldn't do such and such for a hundred dollars. I wouldn't do it for a thousand dollars. I wouldn't even do it for a million dollars. Here you see an ascending scale, i.e. the amount of money, with an increasing emphasis that I would not do whatever it is you're asking me to do. We see that same figure of speech in Mark 13.32. Jesus says that no one knows the day of his second coming, not even the angels in heaven, who are higher than humans, not even the Son, who is higher than the angels, but only the Father in heaven. So Jesus is higher than the angels, who are higher than humans. Jesus believed that he was superior to both angels and humans. So that's one way in which Jesus uses the term Son of God especially. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, quote, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, end quote. This is very likely uh, to be what Jesus really said, uh, because of the principle of embarrassment. Um, it's unlikely the Christian church inserted this into the mouth of the historical Jesus because it says the Son is unknowable. No one knows the Son except the Father. But the conviction of the early church is that we can indeed come to know the Father. What, is, what does this saying tell us about Jesus' belief? It tells us that Jesus believed that as the Son of God, he was the ultimate revelation of God to the human race, greater than any angel or prophet. Now, Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, I would say that's, an, that's a very subtle claim to be the Messiah. Um... Jew, to Second Temple Jews did not necessarily believe that the Messiah would be divine. Some did, I, I, I think. I mean, if you just read the second, the extra-biblical Second Temple literature, you can make a case, man, they really believed the Messiah was going to be this, you know, this humdinger of a guy. Uh, I'm thinking of the... Um, Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's an it's a pseudepigraphical book that's attributed to Solomon, and it talks about the Messiah in very exalted terms. Um, <clears throat> the, oh, the Psalm of Solomon. Psalm of Solomon. Uh, he's called quote the Lord Messiah, who quote will strike the earth with the word of his mouth forever, and he himself will be free from sin, and he will not weaken in his days, end quote. That's Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17, verses 32 to 37. Um, but also in, in the Old Testament, you can find clues that the Messiah would be God. In Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah says, quote, 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, end quote, New King James Version. Isaiah says that the Messiah will come, uh, to come will be born as a child. Isaiah then gives him a list of names or titles that will belong to him, and the most striking of these titles is that the Messiah is mighty God. The Messiah will be God. Um, and in the prophecies about John the Baptist, recorded in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read, uh, in Isaiah, we read, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3.1 says, I will send, this is God speaking in the text, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Um, in Matthew 11.10 and Luke 7.27, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the person Malachi 3.1 was talking about. Who's going to arrive subsequent to this messenger preparing the way for him? Who's going? Uh, these prophecies said that it would be the Lord God. God says through the prophet Malachi, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So I, I would argue that, yes, it's subtle, but it's claiming to be the Messiah is still um, <coughs> a claim to divinity. Now, we also have in John chapter 10, verse 30... Well, actually, I'm going to read more than just verse 30. In John chapter 10, verses 25 to 39, <clears throat> Jesus said, quote, I did tell you that I am the Messiah, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know that and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. End quote. Now, there's a lot of theology in this, in this passage. Um, we, have, we have eternal security. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
No one can snatch them out of my hand. No, Once I give someone eternal life, that's it. They're never going to perish. And no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. But, and we... Um, Calvinists would say we have a claim of uh, unconditional election here. Um, that's debatable. Uh, David Paulman talked about this in last week's podcast episode. But we certainly have <coughs> a claim to be God. Look at, look, look at what we have here in verses 28 and 30. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will, shall never perish. No one, snatch, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. What's Jesus saying here? It's the same hand. Jesus and Jesus's hand is the father's hand. The father's hand is Jesus's hand. Now, I, I know this, this is, kind of sounds modalistic, but it doesn't have to be taken that way. I don't think it has to be taken modalistically. I don't, you know, that they're, the, the Father and Jesus are the same person. But it definitely doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they're not at least the same divine entity. Different persons, but the same divine entity. And notice how he follows this up. I give them eternal life, they'll never snatch them out. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in John chapter 10, verse 30, immediately after this, he says, I and the Father are one. And how did the Jews respond to this? Verses 31 and 32. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus is saying, hey, why are you doing this? I've, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Why, why are you, for which of these do you stone me? And they said, and they say, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood what Jesus was saying. Now, <clears throat> some might say that the following verses, Jesus kind of waters down what he initially said. You know, maybe maybe to try to get himself out of trouble, or maybe because the, his Jewish opponents misunderstood him, uh, because it says. In verse in John ten thirty four, Jesus answered them, "Is it not written in your law? I said, I have said, you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be set aside, uh, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. the The law that Jesus is quoting here is uh, it's from Psalm eighty two. Psalm eighty two six, and we're, we have the we have uh, the members of the heavenly host, and of course I've talked about this when I went over the primeval history paper series when I read those papers aloud on this podcast. Jesus says um, he quotes from that. And he says, "Hey, it says in your it says in the scriptures, I said you are gods. So I'm I'm not I'm not claiming to be Yahweh. I'm just I'm I'm claiming to be a god in the same sense that." you know, these divine council members are. So, you know, what's the big deal? Well, why, why are you accusing me of blasphemy? I'm just, I'm just a god in the same way that any member of the heavenly host is. A lowercase g. No big deal. Um, is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying it's no big deal? I don't think so. I mean, I, I understand why you can read it that way. It kind of looks like that. But here's what... 
<coughs> excuse me, here's what I would propose. Let's go to Psalm 82 and look at what Jesus is, is saying. Uh, see, or uh, rather, what the psalm is saying. Psalm 82. God, oh, this is the New International ver Version. I like the New International Version in some places, but in other places it just translates things badly. And this is one of them. It kind of masks. It says God presides in the great assembly. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. Let's go to the ESV, a word-for-word -word translation. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That's the whole psalm. Psalm chapter 1, 82 verses 1 to 8. Uh, it's only eight verses long. So God is take, he's taking his place in the divine council. He's judging these the gods of the nations, as we see from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and Genesis 10 and 11, uh, they were allotted to the nations at the Babel event, um, and they judged unjustly. One of the reasons is because they led the people, you know, Baal and Asherah, Molech, uh, they led the people, um, Dagon, they led the people into idolatry, to worshiping them, and, you know, and part of the worship was all sorts of atrocious things. You know, Molech had child sacrifice. And he says, you know, you're judging wickedly. And you're showing partiality to the wicked. And God says, do right. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute and so on. And then God, Yahweh, says to these uh, other Elohim, he says, "You, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. They're coming under judgment. So why is Jesus alluding to this psalm? Is he saying, I'm just a god, just like them? Well, look look at what's going on in the, in the context here. God is judging these gods. I don't think Jesus would want to put himself in that category. I mean, yeah, you know, there are other Elohim in the divine council who are not evil, who did not rebel, but... That's, you know, the Elohim that are being talked about in this psalm, they're evil. Why would Jesus want to put it, why would Jesus want to associate himself with evil Elohim? What I think is going on here, he's comparing, and this is what, this is not just me talking. I've read this from, in commentaries, from biblical scholars, theologians. Um, I think Michael Jones talks about this in, um, you know, Inspiring Philosophy. Jesus is comparing the Pharisees, he's comparing the religious leaders to the gods that are being judged in Psalm 82. Because like the gods in Psalm 82, the religious leaders were not judging rightly. And I mean, you know, you just read through all the throughout the Gospels. Uh, they added to the law of God, they put extra prohibitions in place, you know, um... And even Paul talks about this, how, oh, you know, they just, they 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 put back-breaking restrictions that, you know, neither they nor our ancestors could could endure. Um, you know, they just weren't very good. They were corrupt. They, you know, you know a, a casual reader of the New Testament 
picks that up. And this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, you're just like Baal. You're just like Dagon. You're just like Asherah. You're just like the gods allotted to the nations. You are bad. You're bad judges. You're leading the people into, into sin. And you're going to be judged. Now, here's the kicker. If Jesus is judging the Pharisees, and he's quoting Psalm 82, and the Pharisees are in the same position as Psalm 82's gods, what position does that place Jesus in? That He's the one doing the judging. He's the one judging the Pharisees. Who's the one doing the judging in Psalm 82? God, Yahweh. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. So the Pharisee, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm God. I'm like God in the in Psalm 82, and you're like the gods who are being judged. You're being you're bad judges. So I think rather than watering down his his original claim, I think he just bolsters it. This may be why uh, verse 39 says that even after he said this, again they tried to seize him, but th- but he escaped their grasp. Well, uh, if Jesus really watered down what he originally claimed, wouldn't, the, wouldn't they have just been like, oh, my bad, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. You're, you're, just a, you're just a god just like any member of the heavenly host. Okay, that's kind of weird. You know, we don't have a lot of people claiming to be angels, but, you know, it's not, it's not blasphemy, so I'm sorry. But no, they don't do that. They try they, they they try to seize him. Now, if my interpretation that he's comparing them to the gods in Psalm 82, the bad judges, and Jesus and that puts Jesus in the place of God, that would just, you know, dig him uh, into an even deeper hole. Now, the last one, I know we're running pretty long here. I'm trying not to make long episodes, I swear. Uh, but it's in John 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is again having a a dispute with the Jews. Uh, The Jews tell him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. One informational footnote here. Really? You've never been slaves of anyone? Have you not read the book of Exodus? (laughs) I'm sounding like Jesus now. Have you not read? Um, But Jesus replied, uh, very truly, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, uh, etc., 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 uh, the Jew says, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's father, then you would do what Abraham did. But as it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me, etc., etc., etc. Then the Jews... Uh, say that he's demon-possessed. Jesus denies that. He says he honors the Father, but they dis... Uh, they, um, and Jesus says... Uh, uh, the fair, uh, the Jews say, Now we know that you were demon-possessed. Abraham died. Uh, well, Jesus says... Um, uh, Jesus says, Very truly, I say to you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And at this, the Jews say, Now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did all the prophets. Yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? John chapter 8, verses 54 to 59, we read, 
Quote, Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born... I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. End quote. G- you know, the Jews are saying, hey, you're, fu- you're, not, you're not even 50 years old yet. Abraham lived thousands of years ago, and you're saying you saw him. And Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, there's two things. I only see two possibilities here. Either Jesus is using bad grammar, because it's the wrong tense. Before Abraham was born, I am. He should have said, before Abraham was born, I was. So either Jesus slips into bad grammar, and my gram- my inner grammar Nazi needs to, to kick in, or he's claiming the divine name and applying it to himself. And that may be why the Jews get angry after he says that. Uh, what, is the, what, is, what is this referring to? Well, Go to Exodus 3. Uh, In Exodus 3, uh, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, Hey, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. They're they're slaves in Egypt. And Moses, um, (coughs) he tries to get out of it. uh, But he also says, you know, if I go to them and they say, Who sent you? Uh, What should I tell them? What? In other words, you know, uh, if I come to the people of Israel and they say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, quote, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, end quote. So Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. He's claiming to be God. Now, I'm going on one hour and 25 minutes, so I want to just very quickly get to that last category of evidence. The third category, Old Testament titles for Yahweh applied to Jesus. Um, <clears throat> there's an article here on Christianity.com written by Chad Napier. It's called, What Are Seven Names of God in the Old Testament that Jesus Shares in the New Testament? One is Jehovah Nissi, God is my refuge. And Napier writes, quote, Moses' faithfulness resulted in Israel's preservation and victory in battle. In Exodus 17.11, we learn that when, Mo- when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. As Moses' hands grew weary, a stone was placed under him while Aaron and Hur helped by keeping Moses' hands in the raised position. Following the victory and triumph, Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, which is translated to either the Lord is my refuge or Lord is my banner, Exodus 17.16. In 1 Corinthians 15.57, Paul taught, But thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, God provided the victory and provision for Israel, while we rec- while we received salvation through uh, provided 
through and by the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, Chris Napier in this Christianity.com article goes on to give another title, Jehovah Jireh, God Will Provide. He quotes Psalm 23.1, which says, I shall not want, and he says, we learn another name for God in Genesis chapter 22, verses 13 to 14, Jehovah Jireh, or God Will Provide. In the Old Testament, Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his son Isaac for an offering. After the altar was constructed, an angel of the Lord called off the need for Isaac to, for Isaac to be the offering, because the Lord saw that, that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Genesis 22.12 In 2 Peter 1.3, we are told Christ and his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. End quote. And uh, the author here goes on to say, if we know God and we have a relationship with the Son Jesus, we know that he is a great provider. Not only does he provide for our daily needs of, of physical sustenance, but he provides for our eternal need in his plan of salvation. And I think one of the... I, I'm going to give two more, because uh, I don't want this episode to be two hours like last week, but two more... One is that in the Old Testament, God is called the shepherd. In the New Testament, God is called the shepherd. In Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, we read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd as he lays down his life for the sheep. In, there's a lot of shepherd talk in John chapter 10. God is the shepherd in the Old Testament. Jesus is the shepherd in the New Testament. In Romans 10, we get... Well, we know, we know that Jesus is called the Lord in many, many places in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God is called the Lord. Now, people will say, well, he, he's, he's not the Lord, he's a Lord. You know, Lord doesn't always have to be a title of deity. It could just be an idol of, uh, an, a title of honor, like Sir. But in Romans chapter 10, we see from the context that that's not how Paul is using the term Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in a few, verse, a few verses later, in verse 13, this is verse 10 when he says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, he quotes from the book of Joel. And explicitly, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Romans 10, 13 quotes Joel 2, 32. Well, who is the Lord in Joel 2, 32? Yahweh! Everyone who, if you uh, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For Paul, in Romans 10, Jesus 
is not just a lord, but the lord. The original, you might say. So, this, there, there's so much more I could talk about. There's just... Uh, th I, this could be a whole series of podcast episodes, but I'm out of time. My own time, my own self-place time limit. I don't want to have a two-hour podcast episode like I did last week. We had a lot of ground to cover with uh, criti uh, critiquing the tulip, putting tulip on trial. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to say, for right now, if you want more, if you want to go in into more depth, I recommend getting the book Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ. Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ. It's written by Robert Bauman Jr. and J. Ed Komazuski. And it is a very good book. It it gives it it just makes a really powerful case for the deity of Christ. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I uh, want to give a shout-out to my patrons. If I can get it pulled up here on the Relationship Manager. Uh, James Gadomsky. I want to give a shout-out to my patrons. James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Austin Long, Kevin Walker, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you'd like to support the Cerebral Faith Ministry, um, you know, because uh, I use all of the Patreon money to, to, to do the stuff that I'm doing, um, $29 for the website, $30 for Storyblocks, which I use for uh, the YouTube videos that I make to get the stock video footage. Um, and I'm about to make another video. I know it's been a while, but I'm going to make another video. Um, to use Filmora 9, because I can't use iMovie anymore because the MacBook Pro I got from my anonymous donor is too old now. Um, that's going to cost me $45 a year. I'm going to use Patreon money for that. I use Patreon money for research materials. Uh, it just really helps a lot, and it's not just a mere donation site. You get goodies in return. Uh, you can go on patreon.com slash cerebralfaith if you want to know what those uh, benefits are. But uh, thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless you, and I will see you next time. Peace out, and God bless.